You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, here in the middle of Luke chapter 10, we are really at the beginning stages of this discipleship section of Luke's gospel. And what we're going to discover today through two stories, the story of the lawyer who came to Jesus and Jesus told him the story of the Good Samaritan and also secondarily the story of Mary and Martha and uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha complaining about it to the Lord. We're going to learn simply that disciples, they love, they love God and they love their neighbor and disciples listen. Disciples sit at the feet of Jesus. Disciples are desiring and longing to hear the word of the Lord in directing their lives. And so as we move through this text today, there will be a few questions that will be helpful, I think, to us to uh, really ask of our own hearts and to just inquire within about our own life of discipleship. It says in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's very possible that this question from this lawyer, which would have meant that he was a religious scribe of the highest order, an expert in Old Testament law, it's very possible that this lawyer, when he's putting Jesus to the test, isn't putting him to the test in some kind of malicious uh, way, but that he really genuinely wants to know what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, it's very possible that this lawyer realizes that, that there is something amiss within his heart. Now, likely when he wondered about eternal life, he likely thought less about length and more about the kingdom, the kingdom that had been promised, the kingdom age. And so he's wondering, Lord, what must I do to enter into your kingdom? He said to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus really doesn't attack the man or anything like that. He just responds with respect to the man and, and asks him, you know, I know you've studied it. I know you've uh, read it. I know that you've gotten into it. What is your reading of the law? What, what's your summary statement of what you must do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he answered in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, as we know from other New Testament passages that are very similar to this, Jesus affirmed this man's answer. In other words, this man gave a beautiful response Jesus himself would answer the question about the greatest commandment by saying, it is written, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here, however, Jesus doesn't give that answer. Jesus asks the question, and the lawyer answers in that way. He basically is 
putting together or mashing together, melding together Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 to love the Lord your God with everything within you and Leviticus 19, 18 to love your neighbor as yourself. To this man, this is what the law demanded. Now, Jesus said to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. In one sense, had this man, or, or, or any man for that matter, been able to for the entire duration of their lives, every moment, every heartbeat, every day, every hour, every minute, every second, every external action and internal thought, had every single moment of their lives been spent in pure love of God with all heart, soul, strength, and mind, and every action or intention of the heart, had it all been loving their neighbor as themselves, that could give to a man entrance into the kingdom. This is where we insert the glorious hope and message of the gospel, for we understand that this is the righteous requirement of the law and that there is no man who has ever been able to keep the righteous requirement of the law, of the law outside of Jesus Christ, who kept it for us and then died on the cross in our place that there might be another way for us to have eternal life and the way is really the only way because all of us are dead in trespasses and sins none of us can come to god in our own merit through the keeping of the law so all of us must come to god by the only way that exists jesus christ who is the way and the truth and the life jesus said in john 17 verse 3 to the father he said this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John said in 1 John 5.11, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It is not wrapped up in the keeping of the commandments. It is wrapped up in belief in the Son who has kept the commandments. However, when we meet the Lord, when Christ comes into our lives, I think it is true that the finest life possible is the life of loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. The law, of course, says if you do that, you'll live. But the gospel says if you come to me and live, then you can do that. You can live this kind of life where you are able to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of life. I think at this point, however, a great question for a disciple would be to ask the question, am I loving God with my all? Now, of course, we know that we aren't. Uh, we know that we fall short in many ways. We know that we're flawed. We know that we have a flesh. And so perhaps the better question would be, in what ways is the Lord at this moment by his spirit drawing out my flesh that it might be cut off, that I might love God more completely than I do 
today? And maybe even to ask the question, in what ways might I desire to love God more purely, more righteously, more perfectly than I do today? Uh, with the hope of the gospel and the grace of the Lord, it should not be a defeating kind of question, but a hope-filled question. Now, the man, in responding to Jesus, it says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I don't know that this is the case, but it's possible that this man felt that his love for God was sufficient. That is possible because he doesn't ask, how can I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Perhaps he just simply thought that he knew the answer to that question already. But Perhaps he felt that his love for God was sufficient. But what he was trying to do was to justify himself by asking the question, who is my neighbor? This is obviously, in one sense, what mankind often attempts to do before God. They try to, we try to justify ourselves before God and before man. So many of the parades and movements and causes and blogs and articles and, and uh, protests, they're not done primarily to advance any kind of change that the particular group desires and longs for. No, that might be a secondary desire of theirs, but the major desire of their hearts is to justify themselves. To say, my behavior is acceptable. But just the mere need to do that betrays the lack of justification that is there. They have to justify the self. So often, there's an understanding. I have fallen short, but mankind wants to resist that understanding and pretend that it does not exist. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Obviously, what this man wanted to know is, what's the technical scope of my responsibility? And this is so often the attitude of our hearts. We simply want to know the basic, smallest requirement upon my life in order to be right and righteous. But Jesus will frame it in a completely different kind of way. It says Jesus replied in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now here Jesus tells a story. We don't know if the story was true. We don't know if the story was a parable. Jesus does not say, but he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, when Jesus says this to that culture, they would have understood the situation. For us, we read that this man went from one Bible town to another Bible town. But in traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, he would have been traveling 17 miles on desolate, rocky, dangerous ground. There would be about a 3,000 foot drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he would be going through dangerous territory because 
there wasn't much out there for those 17 miles. And Jerusalem and Jericho were both prominent cities, which meant that there was money that was passing back and forth between Jerusalem and Jericho. So it made for a great spot for robbers and bandits to hide amongst the rocks and steal and thieve. You would not want to travel on that road alone, but apparently that's exactly what this man had done. The robbers came upon him, stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So that's the sad situation. Now in verse 31, it says, By chance, Jesus said, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. It's possible that this priest coming from Jerusalem, he's going down that road. He's just finished perhaps his ceremonial duties. He's fresh off a religious experience and spiritual high, so to speak. And he comes upon this man and perhaps not wanting to sacrifice his ceremonial purity, not wanting to bloody his robes. He does the audacious thing with seemingly no one watching, and he passes by on the other side of the road. One of the saddest statements in Scripture. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite, who obviously was not of the echelon of the priests, but would have been working uh, for the Lord from time to time. Uh, It says, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. And so you can just imagine the excuses of these men. Perhaps they would say it's safer not to get involved. Perhaps this is a trap being set up. Perhaps the man is already dead, and what good can I do at this late hour, at this moment? But they made excuses for themselves and passed by on the other side. Now, in verse 33, Jesus takes the story to the next level. They would have expected, I'm sure many of them, had they been listening to this story and had they been observing Jesus' ministry, they perhaps would have thought that the third character would have been a common Israelite farmer. Uh, You go from a priest to a Levite to a common Israelite. But Jesus did not go there and instead said, but a Samaritan. This was an explosive word from Jesus. The natural expectation would be that that you know Jesus is upset with the religiosity of the day but us commoners but instead Jesus used an outcast from the vilified Samaritan people and said but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion I want you to see the way in which this Samaritan had compassion upon the man. It's very convicting. Uh, It wasn't a compassion of pure emotion. It was compassion that sunk down into real action of life. It says he went to him. You know, he approached the man. 
he went to the man in his distress, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The, the man had great compassion. He went to the man. He tended to the immediate wounds, putting on bandage and pouring on the good medicine of oil and wine. And you just have to remember that this was a very personal thing that this man was doing, engaging with the wounds of this man upon this road. He then took him to an inn. He cared for the man. After caring the man for a while, he paid for future care of the man and promised financing for any care that went beyond the money that he had deposited with the innkeeper. This wasn't impulsive. Uh, this was practical and helpful and strong. Jesus then said to the lawyer, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, it's important to notice what Jesus asks the lawyer at this point. The lawyer had asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked the lawyer the question, are you being a neighbor? In other words, when he said, which one of these proved to be a neighbor, the question wasn't, who is my neighbor? The question was, are you acting like a neighbor? Are you being a neighbor? Now, this is beautiful because Jesus, I think, on one hand, is destroying the patronizing benevolence that so many people adhere to of the greater helping the lesser and this sort of prideful, you know, Hollywood movie star helping the poor, impoverished uh, people who aren't as wonderful and in as beautiful of a place as we are allowed to be kind of thing. Obviously, there is an ability to do good works in a self-beneficial kind of way. Jesus destroys that when he talks about a Samaritan blessing a Jew. And the question here is, am I being a neighbor? The man said to Jesus, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. Which of the three? Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, obviously, in many ways, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He was outside the religious order of the day and contrasted against it. He was despised and rejected and put to the cross. And he went to those who were outcast and beaten and left for dead. That's us uh, here on earth. He came to the world in its brokenness and fallenness. He is the ultimate good Samaritan. 
but we as well are to imitate Christ by showing mercy to the beaten and bloodied and robbed and left for dead in our culture and in our society. Now, the beautiful thing here is that this demands our all. Jesus is not simply giving an admonition that tells us that we're to give to those who are begging on the side of the road or something like that. No, he would say that what we are to do is the most loving thing for the people that are all around us. And when we ask it, the question in that kind of way, or we frame it in that kind of way. It's such a demanding kind of thing upon our lives. We would say, Lord, help us by your spirit that we might grow to be more like you. To be a man or a woman who is concerned with those all around us who are beaten and bloodied and robbed and left for dead. Another question we might ask is, who in our society is robbed and stripped and beaten and left for dead. And I think in one way or another, we would have to say nearly everyone. You could have a 10-car garage and all of the riches in the world and be a person who has been hurt and broken through sin and death and defilement, and you are in need of the love of believers in this world. And so the question, am I a neighbor? Now, the next story, much shorter, is in verse 38. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. We know from cross-referencing this out that Martha's house was in the town of Bethany, six miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus goes into that village and uh, he goes into Martha's house. She had, verse 39, a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And so these two very famous sisters, Martha and Mary, uh, you see them quite often in the Gospels. They are the sisters, by the way, of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. But Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much serving. Verse 39, we see that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, she was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, you have this very fascinating situation and development. First of all, there's Mary in the house, just sitting there listening to Jesus and, and all of his teaching. Martha, on the other hand, she just continued to prepare and serve. Perhaps Martha had served for a little bit and finally sat down to enjoy Jesus's teaching, which is, of course, noteworthy because she's taking the posture of a disciple, a learner. And so here you have a female disciple and learner of Christ. Jesus does not rebuke the concept. And Martha, on the other hand, is distracted. Mary's sitting there and learning. Martha is distracted. We've all been there. We've 
We've all known a, a woman like her, a man like her. Uh, she likely entered into the kitchen and one thing became two things, which became four things and then eight things and then 16 things. She just uh, overwhelmed herself with task after task and, and duty after duty and became a distracted person. Uh, she got to the point where she felt that she needed to ask Jesus about this thing. She goes to Jesus, perhaps after trying to drop hints to Mary, maybe sighing or groaning or banging pots together in the kitchen. She goes to Jesus, not Mary, but she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Then the Lord said, and, and we read this, but I want you to see this. He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Luke describes Martha as distracted. The thing she was distracted with was much serving. Jesus describes Martha as anxious and troubled about many things. And so the biblical description of Martha is distracted, anxious, and troubled about many things. You know, the truth is we live in a world that just operates with such intensity and with such speed. God spoke to Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 12 and said, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book of your prophecy until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. I think that's a perfect description of the age that we are living in. You can travel to and fro with great speed and knowledge has certainly increased. I mean, they, they say knowledge is doubling at such exponential and rapid rates. It's just amazing. There's so much information that is being produced and created and uploaded every single day. And the speed of our environment, the speed of our world can lead to great distraction, great anxiety, and great trouble about many things. Jesus tells Martha, he says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so the question that a disciple would ask is, am I distracted? Am I choosing the good portion of sitting at the feet of Christ and enjoying my relationship with him? And I dare say that in, the, in this environment, the only way that you can do that is by going harshly against the cultural flow and the cultural norms. You have to slow down. You have to slow down by disconnecting. You have to say no to, uh, you know, different uh, commitments online and socially and all of that. You have to simplify. You have to use the word no in your calendar and in your commitments. You have to redefine, I think, what progress even looks like in the first place. And you have to prioritize that which is important not just in your mind with some kind of statement like God is first, family second, church third, or some type of statement. 
You have to reflect your priorities within your calendar, within your decision making. You have to fight for this kind of simplicity. You have to fight for this kind of opportunity of sitting and slowing down and meeting with the Lord. But Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good portion. Ancient Israel, whenever they encamped, they all camped around the tabernacle and the doors of their tents would face the tabernacle. It was a way of saying, we are centered around God. And the believer, the disciple is centered around their relationship with Christ. It is not to be a back burner kind of relationship, but an alive and vital and central part of what we are. Jesus said, it will not be taken away from her. The enemy will whisper in your ear in that quiet hour of prayer and Bible study that this is a waste of time. But the reality is that that will never be taken away from you. It's something that's deposited into the eternal vaults of heaven itself and it will never be taken away from you. Choose this life, I plead with you. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.